Are you asking me that now? Yeah. Oh. Well, <laughs> I thought we were still just jawing before we started. Anyway, watching what's happened in women's athletics today mm-hmm. is more than exciting to me. It's extremely rewarding because, of course, I came in the era where women were denied the opportunity to participate. Yeah. And we've got the Olympics coming up, and we, of course, have some SIU representatives there. But just the number of women Mm -hmm. competing, uh, a lot of people don't realize that we had in Rio more women Olympians competing than men. Uh And that's even more surprising when we know that there are 30-some more spots for men than women. So women have grasped the opportunity to compete. Uh-huh. They've, they've always wanted to, but not the extent, because they see, they see other athletes, and you, they want to emulate them. So, you know, it, it's so exciting. And I lived in a generation where the breakthrough was happening, and the mm-hmm. young women I coached, they were so appreciative. Yeah. Oh, they were appreciative. And, and that was especially rewarding and i worry today that men and women alike don't appreciate that opportunity Mm -hmm. they don't realize say a college scholarship athlete what they're getting because of their athletic ability and maybe they're more focused on wanting more than to appreciate what you have yeah and i i think that's a, a real theme in my life is to want more but appreciate what you have. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that is that is a fine balance, especially in the in the modern uh, collegiate sport arena where it's become such a big business. Uh, you know, and and I, I this is just a, a very relevant topic of conversation where you know uh, Governor uh, Pritzker has just signed into law right. the the compensation components of of collegiate athletics, and and I don't know if that's something that leads to both. Uh, a recognition of value in the athlete, but also the athlete being able to have a more appreciation for, you know, participation in sport just because now there's, there's more, there's more skin in the game from the institutions pulling them along. Uh, that that's an interesting perspective that, you know, it is big business mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it's too much big business. Yeah. And with all of this, uh, emphasis on letting the athletes use their name and fame for additional benefits mm-hmm. you've stopped you don't realize the benefits they already get yeah they're they're coming they get tuition fees room board books tutoring all the health care that they will, can mm-hmm. possibly have and if they have financial need they get additional three thousand dollars a month okay plus other benefits and you, you kind of step back and think, wow, what else do they, <laughs> what else do they need? Mm-hmm. And the thing that bothers me most is that athletics is getting more and more expensive. Mm-hmm. And people think, okay, you read about the NCAA billion-dollar contract, mm-hmm. $7 billion contract, and you think it's big business. But the matter of fact is that within the NCAA, over a thousand institutions, there are only twenty some that actually make money. Huh, okay. Now All right. I think that's a fact that, you know, people involved in sports know, but the general public doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And if in fact they're not making money, they're using student fees, mm-hmm. which certainly I support or we wouldn't be here. <laughs> we wouldn't have an athletic program. But we've got to watch the expenditures mm-hmm. because what's going to happen is they give more and more money to football and men's and women's basketball they're going to drop other sports mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now i don't want to be a negative forecaster but there's only one way to go yeah you have and back in the i believe it was the late 80s at mm-hmm. the ncaa convention we talked about these escalating expenses and these absurd absurd and obscene Mm -hmm. (laughs) salaries that the coaches are getting. Mm -hmm. And we proposed a very minor restriction on pay. Mm -hmm. And that was for men's and women's basketball that the assistant coach at at a graduate assistant level Mm -hmm. could only make X amount of money. Mm -hmm. Very reasonable. And it was the first step in trying to get an antitrust suit. What happens? 
Mike, Coach Mike K prays in, no, his isn't going to be limited like that. He's going to make a whole lot more. <laughs> and they took the NCAA to court, mm-hmm. and the NCAA lost, lost millions in the suit. Uh-huh. So people are saying, how come, you know, these coaches are making seven, eight million? Well, it's keeping up with the Joneses, <laughs> <laughs> and there's no limit. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a great advocate in saying, let's limit it. Yeah. In fact, there's a, a group called the Drake Group that uh, educators, prominent people in athletics get together and advise what, what should happen. And they were saying, look, the coaches certainly shouldn't make two or three times more than the president of the university. Yeah. And so they were suggesting, why not put a cap two or three times as much? Didn't go any place. Well, and no. you hear the stories of you know the the highest paid government employees in certain states being coaches for sport teams at a oh, collegiate yeah. level. Yeah, that's where the money's going. So you can't really blame the athletes. I'm sweating. I'm working hard, and yeah. I'm having a harder time making it because I come from a disadvantaged background. And here's Coach ABC. That's making seven million, mm-hmm. and you can understand why they want a part of it. Yeah, but like so much, they people don't know the history, and they mm-hmm. don't know, like the most schools don't make money. Yeah, and I worry to death that they're going to start cutting tennis, golf, soccer, swimming. Yeah. You know, most places they don't make money. Yeah. So what are we going to do? Give it to a select few. And that ruins the whole amateurism aspect of collegiate sport. And, and I think that is, that is a component that we will explore for the 74th episode of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where uh, we're going to explore a little bit of history. We're going to explore a little bit of the mechanisms uh, around collegiate sport uh, for this podcast, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and title back to this little old place we call home Carbondale, Illinois. And for this episode, we have Dr. Charlotte West. I seriously, I'm, I'm so appreciative, not just of, of this time here, but your patience with me and in my <laughs> previous technical issues earlier in the week, trying to get this set up. And, uh, I just, it's the, the wealth of knowledge that, that you bring about, uh, not, not just what you've done within, uh, the world of collegiate sport, but also just being able to have observed it over its development into what we see and what we engage with now. Um, has has sport always been part of your life? I mean, is it just something that since a kid you've just been competitive and, and loved the act of sport and so thought to pursue it through and through as a career path? Yeah, let me, before I answer yeah, that, please just do. say, here, uh, next June, mm-hmm. 2022 will be 50 years of Title IX. Awesome. And I have spent that 50 years, a large part of my life, working on the implementation Mm -hmm. of Title IX. Now, how did I get interested in sport? Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always loved to uh, run, play, dance, anything physical movement. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate in growing up in St. Petersburg, Florida, that junior high had women's volleyball, basketball, and softball. Mm-hmm. And so I played volleyball and basketball and softball. And then I went to St. Petersburg High School, and they had sports for women. So what well, sports for women? We might have had five basketball games in a season, <laughs> but at least we played. Uh-huh. And our coach made our uniforms. She could sew. Uh-huh. She made our uniforms. Our parents drove us to the games. There was no public support or school support other than you can do this if you want to. Mm-hmm. So what a shock for me when I went to Florida State University as a freshman, nothing for women. At all. I mean, nothing at all. And what a credible program they have now, you mm-hmm. know. They're always nationally ranked in softball and track and field and uh, golf for women. A marvelous school, but nothing for women. And when I was in high school and we had those high school sports, Mm -hmm. our coach also played on a city team 
which was AAU-sponsored. Uh, and uh, what they would get is we played for uh, R.H. Hall, Calvinator Maytag Appliance Company. <laughs> <laughs> Always <laughs> nice to have that sponsor. Fu- they funded us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the only competition there was for women was AAUW. Mm-hmm. Certainly not the NCAA, certainly not the what is the IHSA. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she asked me because she knew I played well and I loved it. Would I like to play on that city team? So when I was in college, I would go off and meet my teammates someplace, whether we were in Orlando or Jacksonville or mm-hmm. any place, and play. So I had an opportunity to play, and I loved it so much that I think as I reflect back that that was a driving force is why isn't this available for all women and girls? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a given. I mean, just to say I'm having this rich personal experience Everybody, like me, deserves this rich personal experience. And, you know, it's so wonderful for women. They've done a lot of studies. And high school girls, for instance, if they involved in sport, Mm -hmm. one, they make better grades. They're less likely to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to be in drugs, et Mm -hmm. cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All positive attributes for having that opportunity to compete respect their bodies, respect their teammates. Mm-hmm. A lot of positives come from sport. And thank goodness it's now available for all women because before Title IX, yeah. one in 27 high school girls played sports. One in 27. <laughs> and today, two in five. Now, wow. I mean, we're talking a 1,000%, more than a 1,000% yeah. increase thanks to... 1972 law that prohibited discrimination against women in educational institutions. So was it was it the educational institution of SIU that brought you to Carbondale, or was it something else that brought you here in the in the first place? <laughs> Interesting. I uh, was getting my master's at the University of North Carolina at mm-hmm. Greensboro, and. Near the end of the year, like February, March or something, everybody was talking about, okay, where will you be next year? What job are you going to take? And Mm -hmm. it was easy to get a job at that time, somewhat of a teacher shortage. And so I looked around, and I had kind of thought, I'd like to go to Penn State, I think, you know. And I told our head of the department, she said, (laughs) oh, no, Charlotte, everybody in the profession should be in the Midwest at least part of their life. Yeah. And I'm thinking, now, I'm talking about coming from Florida. So anyway, I got a invitation to come to SIU for an interview. And part of it was because I got my master's in dance mm-hmm. and physical education. Mm-hmm. And the job here, that's kind of a unique combination. Yeah. They wanted somebody that could teach dance and teach sports. Huh. So I came and Dorothy Davies, who the gymnasium is named after, uh-huh. Uh, a very uh, wonderful educator, a very aggressive woman. I, I came, and it was a, it was in March, and there had had snow, and there was black cinders on the streets, and <laughs> it wasn't its best foot forward, yeah. okay? So I told my friend that I had talked into coming with me. Well, that's the last I see Carbondale. <laughs> so I got back, and uh, Dorothy Davies kept trying to call me, and so I left the dorm room and went to the student center just to get away. Uh-huh. She had me paged in the student center, and she, with the head of the department down there, kind of coerced me into coming. Uh-huh. Well, how thankful I am for that because yeah. I came, and uh, 42 years later, I was still here. <laughs> and only once in those 42 years did I seriously consider leaving. Yeah. And I stayed, and I had a lot of opportunity. And, you know, SIU, I love. It's a wonderful place. So uh, I don't like that comment about that's the last time I see Carbondale. <laughs> I've seen it for many, many years since. But it's so – I've got to tell you, Charlotte, it is so indicative of every conversation that I have on this podcast but just in on the street here. 
it doesn't matter what age somebody is. It doesn't matter where they've come from. It doesn't matter what their plan in life is. It just so happens to seem that when they say, I tried to get out of Carbondale, <laughs> what they generally follow up with is, but I couldn't help but either stay or come back. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, at Florida State, where I went to college, I had a major in mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't thinking of sports at all, yeah. you know. And when I got my doctorate at Wisconsin, I concentrated on statistics. Mm -hmm. And because that was a wonderful blend with my math background. Mm -hmm. And I liked tests and measurements and everything. So my advisor there left. So they decided that I should come to the University of Wisconsin mm -hmm. and be uh, a specialist in the measurement area in, a, in physical education. Uh -huh. And they threw a loud out in front of me to entice me. <laughs> and in fact, they ended up saying, come the first year, you don't have to do anything, we'll just give you an upfront sabbatical. <laughs> you can wow. set up your research and do what you want. And so that, that was a difficult period because mm -hmm. that I loved. But that was also at a time just when sports were starting to grow for women. Mm -hmm. And I would have had to left the sports scene. Oh, thank goodness. I stayed because that was uh, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. It was a perfect storm for <laughs> women in sport. So what, what was your first introduction to the administrative struggles of getting policy in place to level the playing field? Ooh, I got sports puns now. Uh, <laughs> to, but to level that playing field to bring uh, you know, women's sports activities in line with men's sports activities. Well, in, in 1971, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women was formed. Now, that, that in itself is, is a marvelous history where in the 60s, we started paying attention to women in sport, and that was the, you know, burn your bra, feminist, mm -hmm. everything. And we had the uh, TV appearing in everybody's home, which yeah. it hadn't. And so we, sports were brought right to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And people were saying, what is wrong with the American women? Because we were dismal. Mm -hmm. Like, I can remember sitting down and watching USA women's volleyball in the Olympics play Japan. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was not good. <laughs> and, and so everybody was saying, what's happening? Mm -hmm. And... Doris Duke Cromwell gave a half a million dollars to the United States Olympic Committee and said, do something about women in sport. Mm -hmm. now, this was in the late 60s. When half a million dollars was quite Back something there, more than it already is. Right. When I used to lecture about this, I would say, what's that equivalent today? And we're talking big dollars. Yeah. So the United States Olympic Committee had some institutes to teach women how to coach so that we could do a better job. Mm -hmm. So that set the stage in the 60s, mm -hmm. and people were saying, we want national championships. Well, a lot of people don't know that SIU women's basketball went to the first ever national championship in 1969 at Westchester, Pennsylvania. Wow. It's a marvelous history. We were at the second one in Northeastern in Boston. So we have a very rich history. Mm -hmm. But just those teams and starting the sports people were saying, oh, we need a national championship. You know, mm -hmm. these were invitational championships. So AIAW was formed because the NCAA said they were not interested in <laughs> having that for women. <laughs> At the time, that's what they said. Yeah, so we time. formed AIAW. Now, that was 71. Mm -hmm. And in 1972, Title IX passed. So you asked me, um, how did I get? active in the legislation of Title IX yeah. and the implementation. Mm -hmm. So naturally, first started out with the, uh, the legislation. The law was passed, mm -hmm. 37 words. No one in the United States shall be subjected to discrimination or excluded from participation in any educational activity or program receiving federal funds. Uh -huh. Okay, 37 words. What does that mean? Well... The lawyers in Washington had to write the law to explain it to people, what you had to do and what you didn't have to do. Mm -hmm. And 
SIU was one of the few schools they visited to talk to people, talk to me <laughs> and uh-huh. a professional colleague, to find out what should be in the law. So we were instrumental from step one in writing the legislation, mm-hmm. and they had, wrote it and had a draft. Then they had hearings in 10 principal cities around the country mm-hmm. to say to the men and the women, and the men were frantic about the law. <laughs> really, they were yeah. frantic because the head of the NCAA said it will be the demise of men's oh, sports. It's, it's, always, it's always the end the demi- of something. And <laughs> the sky is falling. So we had all these hearings. They took notes and everything. And in 1975, the regulations were published. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, okay, you have three years to comply. <laughs> uh, <laughs> such a joke. 1978, everybody will be in compliance. Uh-huh. No. Well, it's 2021. Uh-huh. And we're still fighting this fight. Few, 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 if any schools are in compliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the progress has been tremendous. Yeah. So early on, I was involved in AIAW and the creation of legislation for for title Mm nine and i i guess if i had even a hundred dollars for every speech on title nine i've ever given i'd be (laughs) so rich (laughs) i don't know how how i'd spend it but anyway it's it's been a great ride it's been a great ride and to see to see the progress and yes it's been hard fought uh i i was victimized yeah. I was threatened, mm-hmm. told if I, I was told by a university vice president, if I would continue to push, he'd have to see about getting somebody else for the job. So, you know, that's, that's no fun. Mm-hmm. But if you have the passion yeah. <laughs> to th- see things right and, and do things right, you, you persevere. You persevere. Well, and, and once, you, once you start down that path, Right. Once once you have been approached by the institution, whatever it may be, in this case, the federal government that came to you, that came to the school, that engaged with you directly. Once you're down that path, whether you are in a position with a title or not, you're that credible person on that issue. And then you find ways to express that again, whether you are or not in, 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 in a in a position of of power because somebody has removed you from it. And what I'm getting to here is to say that, uh, you know, you talked about the uh, the television and its impact and, and how media played a role oh, in all of this. Very much. <laughs> right? And, and, and to me, my, my thought is whether you would or would not have been employed at SIU – uh, during these times that simply having the ability to speak out on these things, to get on the radio, to get on the television, to get in a newspaper and and speak on these issues would have still been your your power with this. Now, you had much more power than it because you still kept to be or you still were able to be within the institution, I would say, that simply being within it gives more, oh, more I have, strength. I have hundreds of colleagues that live very much a parallel life with me. Yes. Because whether you were at UCLA, mm-hmm. friend, whether you were at Southwest Missouri State or Missouri State at that now, mm-hmm. uh, you were going through pretty much some of the same things. Yeah, maybe maybe not as closely aligned with the national group as I was, but mm-hmm. you were still uh, going through the same thing, being damned for asking for something. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, having to having to keep pushing. I I can remember way back. In the mid-70s, when people were starting to heed the law a little bit more carefully, saying <laughs> to the male athletic director, if we change 1% a year, let's just have a plan. Like the men were getting, like, say, 92% of the budget, mm-hmm. and we were getting 8 Well, let's just change that a little bit at a time. And they scoffed, you know. <laughs> but we were willing to take baby steps because we'd have had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we had nothing. I, I mentioned we went to the first national women's invitational basketball championship mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. And when we were invited, well, we had no budget. Yeah. And I went to the 
administration and said, you know, help, we need, we need something. And so we got two cars, meals and lodging. Two, two cars. And we had just won the state women's basketball championship. And we had like 14 or 15 players on our team, which you could not take in two cars. No. So we had to cut. And that was terrible. These young women had played all season with mm-hmm. us, had just won, but we couldn't take them. So we were going to cut them down to, to 10, mm-hmm. five in each car. And the, my assistant coach at that time would drive one and I would drive the other. And I have to add our assistant coach was Billy Moore, mm-hmm. who was the 1976 Olympic coach. Oh, man. And I had recruited her at one of these institutes where the, you know, was funded by Cromwell. Mm-hmm. I knew right away she knew a lot about basketball. <laughs> and I talked her into coming to get her master's. Mm-hmm. She was soon recruited away, I might add. But anyway, <laughs> we, we had to pick this team. So at the last cut, the, the players said, oh, Dr. West, we don't care. We'll ride four in the back seat. Don't cut anybody else. Don't cut anybody else. And I said, that's a long way from Carbondale to Westchester, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it won't be comfortable. Well, they, they went on and on. And so we said, okay. <laughs> so we, we had all these p- four people in the back seat, three in the front. <laughs> and you know what? A round trip, never one complaint. Yeah. Now, today, I'd probably be sued for crowding yeah. them in the car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different era. Yeah. But we went and, and the most wonderful, wonderful time. So it kind of reflects back what I'm saying. It was a different era and what the, uh, athletes expected Yeah. And, and what they got. So the, the 70s were such a wonderful time with increasing uh, number of participants adding sports, getting increased funding. Mm-hmm. And um, I was president of this AIW in 1978. Mm-hmm. And between the 72 and 78, I had 10,000 people asking me for interviews or students, you know, heard about Title IX or their mm-hmm. teachers did and wanted to write papers. In fact, I played in a golf tournament at um, Pinckneyville, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. No, it was in Nashville. And a young lady from DeCoin said, oh, I remember I was a, I was a senior and I got to interview you on Title IX. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the students were interviewing me. And the mm-hmm. reason I'm mentioning that is because in 78, I was in Washington, D.C. at mm-hmm. a AIW meeting when several students on the SIU campus filed a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights Mm -hmm. over our program at SIU. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people, and people I reported to later told me they thought, you did that. I didn't do it. The students did it It because you had educated the students. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh. So (laughs) I was proud of them, and we got our first Title IX review, which they came in and said, you're bad here, you're bad here, you're bad here. And we made some good progress. Mm-hmm. We made some good progress. So was there was there kind of a, a more tumultuous point after that from from seventy eight kind of into the mid eighties where there was kind of some some push and some pull and some oh. some more. Uh, That's fighting. a marvelous question. You have some insight, I can tell. But the seventies. <laughs> bl- blame uh, Diane. It's all her uh, fault for giving me some the insight. The seventies, <laughs> you know, I said that was a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened in the 80s was we had Ronald Reagan as the president, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not a supporter of women's sports by Mm -hmm. any shape or very much a states' rights Mm -hmm. guy. And Grove City College in Pennsylvania filed a lawsuit saying they didn't have to follow Title IX Mm -hmm. because they didn't get federal funding. Okay. Well, subsequently it was found out, yeah, they did get federal funding. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it was 88, we had the Civil Rights Restoration Act. Mm -hmm. So we had a period in the 80s that was, I call it the decadent decade. (laughs) It was dismal Uh because male athletic directors are saying, now we don't have to do anymore. Now we don't have to do anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. Law's not really in effect. 
Well, the Civil Rights Restoration Act, Congress supported over the president's veto, mm -hmm. and we got Title IX back. And so that was late 80s. And then in the 90s, I think of it as a renaissance mm -hmm. because uh, by then the NCAA had swooped us up, and that, that's a story in itself. <laughs> but we had some good leadership, good leadership in the NCAA, mm -hmm. Richard Schultz. And we had a, a Title IX study of all the schools and saying, this is where we are. Now we'll go back to the press. When this got published, people were aghast. Mm -hmm. Here we were 20 years after Title IX and the progress had been minimal. And especially in the area of, I'm just gonna mention one of the aspects of Title IX is fair share of scholarships. Mm -hmm. And well, the men were getting millions and millions and millions more than the women. So that's one of the few places in Title IX that they uh, interpreted it very narrowly. Mm -hmm. uh, 1979, they had some interpretations. They brought in specialists around the country to talk about how close, because the law didn't tell you how close you had to be mm -hmm. with respect to percentage of men and women in scholarships. Mm -hmm. And they ruled 1% differential. So as we look nationally today, Schools are in compliance with scholarship distribution. Mm -hmm. Marvelous. They're not in compliance with participation rate or expenditures. But uh, I think one of the marvelous things about Title IX is those laws were written in 72 to 75 and published in 75. Mm -hmm. They remain in effect today. They were so well, so well written, mm -hmm. and they're flexible enough like we don't have to be the same as Illinois State, yeah. And Illinois State doesn't have to be the same as you of Illinois, mm -hmm. but they have general guidelines. And if you are out of compliance, like we were when the students filed their complaint, mm -hmm. you're given a period of time to correct it. You're given a chance to write a plan and say this is what we're going to do to change it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what helped make SIU. You know, we were pretty much leaders mm -hmm. in that era. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's again just the 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 magical components of this place and where we get to participate in national and global stages is just astounding yeah. to me and hearing a story like this is uh -huh. one of those things. Now for uh, Diane was talking on the on the on the last podcast or maybe it was beforehand at some point but she said that you actually went and testified on Capitol Hill. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I worked with one committee with Strom Thurmond. Uh, who, wow. You heard about uh, such a Republican conservative, you know, uh -huh. from what, South Carolina? But what a, what a delightful person. Mm -hmm. And I was very naive about politics, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was called in because there weren't too many women that had the experience that a yeah. few of us had. And I was like, <laughs> wow. And I can remember sitting at a luncheon with him and saying, now, tell me, you know, we talked this morning about so-and-so and so-and-so, and I said, you weren't even in there, and you know all of this. And he said, that's what a good aide does. Uh -huh. That's what a good aide does. And uh, anyway, yes, I, I did testify before a Senate committee, not okay. the whole Senate not, not in the whole itself. Senate, just... God forbid. Hey, committee still pretty committee big. Senate committee was enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think of a, 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 a neighbor of, of mine that, that's been here from from Oklahoma for for many years and, and worked at the um, worked at the university. Dave Gilbert. He was the he was the gentleman who went and testified to Congress regarding the Toyota Tin Whiskers unintended acceleration of vehicles issue. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right. We we would joke about uh, whether or not uh, Toyota was going to be sending some. Uh, you know, some knee breakers to the neighborhood to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to have a to have a chat with uh, with neighbor Dave. And it's just, you know, to to think that, you know, from from little old southern Illinois, that we could reach up into, uh, you know, the 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 great halls of, of power that are wow. that is Congress and to to have an impact by just giving professional testimony and opinion on what, you know, what we know. Yes, sometimes our uh, AIW national office was in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and uh, when different issues about Title IX came out, uh, 
I can remember going to the Capitol building and meeting with different House of Representatives people, you mm -hmm. know, just to try to explain things to them and try to get their support as laws were enacted. Yeah. Because once the NCAA uh, published their report, they uh, created, and I can't think of, is it Cardis Collins, a uh, Democratic uh, senator from the Chicago area, mm -hmm. proposed the uh, a national federal survey mm -hmm. of how schools distributed their money. And that is still in effect today. The Education Inequity Act mm -hmm. is an act that every school has to fill out a form and send it in every October. And you can go on the internet and find out, okay, what about Belmont College? How about Florida State? What, how do they distribute their money? You can mm -hmm. find out all the key components of Title IX. And that has helped tremendously because schools have to front say, this is what we're doing. Yeah, And uh, so once people get information, it's very advantageous for progress. Mm -hmm. I, you, I, you can't deny it when it's on paper. You know, when, right. you, when you show the hard facts of the numbers, then it becomes unquestionable. Right. That, <laughs> that's, so, that's so true, Nathan. You know, Title IX has had some myths about how bad it is. Mm -hmm. And one of it is it's causing you to drop men's sports. Okay. When you, yes, some men's sports have been dropped. Mm -hmm. But more have been added. Yeah. And when when I speak and I, mean, I have a PowerPoint and I show the number of sports that have been dropped, mm -hmm. and then I show the number that have been added, mm -hmm. they're still coming out ahead, and yeah. they're still very much disproportionate participants of men and participants of women. Mm -hmm. And you know, you drop sports for different reasons, like uh, gymnastics had a lot of dropping of sports mm -hmm. well that's because the high schools were not having gymnastics because liability reasons mm -hmm. and so if you were a gymnast you were coming up through a club system mm -hmm. and it was so so expensive mm -hmm. and i can remember her vogel our coach here for years saying to me we need our own gym we need a floor that has a cave in it and we need this and this and i'm saying we don't even have any money to do, you know, what we're doing. <laughs> so uh, nationally, it wasn't just here, but nationally, gymnastics was dropped. Mm -hmm. And it's still a club sport. Still, It's not a it's very, very few collegiate programs. Uh, I think it got down to 12 in the men one year for Division One gymnastics. Mm -hmm. uh, wrestling suffered. And I can't sit here and tell you why wrestling suffered. Yeah. Uh, but the wrestling coaches were adamant that it was Title IX. <laughs> and so that's been a whole different battle in itself yeah. is to try to show that, well, yeah, they're dropping wrestling, but they're adding soccer right and left, lacrosse mm -hmm. right and left, and most of all, football. Because I, I used to do a lot of lecturing in the Northeast mm -hmm. in those very prestigious academic institutions, mm -hmm. and they were suffering from having low male student population. Mm -hmm. and they were adding football to bring in male students. Mm -hmm. So football grew like topsy, yeah. you know, and wrestling dropped out. And it wasn't Title IX. Yeah. Didn't have a darn thing to do with Title IX. But Tastes change over time. Yes. And it's easier to, instead of saying, What's changing about the general public's interest and how do we accommodate that? It's, it's, it's much more difficult to say that than it is to say the easy thing, which is, oh, well, this, this thing over here just happened. There was this policy change. So, of course, the policy change is what's hurting us, yeah. not our inability to keep up with the times. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> We've gone through little sieges like that through the years. But I think, I think now... Uh, most male athletic directors are supportive of Title IX. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're not, they're less likely to get the job. Yeah. And they learn that. They learn that the hard way, some of them, uh, because uh, a lot of women involved in athletics, you know, they were an information source. Mm -hmm. How is your so-and-so? 
And we had um, Jim Livengood as an athletic director here when they merged the departments. Mm -hmm. Summit forced a merger, which we didn't want. The women didn't want, but he forced it. Jim mm -hmm. was the AD, and he was marvelous to work with. Yeah, just marvelous because he very much believed that women should have an opportunity. Yeah. Now I can't say that about all ADs, and unfortunately, yeah. he was recruited back home very quickly. So he was only with us less than two years. Mm -hmm. Did you did you have mentors along the way? yourself. I, I, I know, you know, Di Diane talks about how, uh, you know, you were able to mentor her, but you know, the, the mentor mentee relationships are often passed down, yes. you know, from one to the next that, you know, they are very much. Uh, but of course I had no one because there weren't any women. Yeah, ADs. Yeah. There were not any collegiate women ADs, but we had, uh, a very, um, much of a unified support system in mm -hmm. AIAW mm -hmm. that we helped each other and we had this problem on our campus and we'd share how we got around it or through it or mm -hmm. over it. And so we had a lot of uh, peer mentoring. Mm -hmm. That's, that is, mm -hmm. uh, that is such a, such an interesting thing to, to understand that when there is not already this traditional system in place where there is a, hierarchy okay. that would yield that type of support that you have to go horizontal, horizontal. rather than vertical right <laughs> to make it happen yes very much so very much so the uh, do you do you remember some of your early media interactions like your first time on television or your first times having to talk to newspapers or radio interviews or things like that oh boy I can't really sit here and think, oh, that was the first time I was on TV. Right. And I know that's that, a that's a pretty uh, big big lift. And that, that just leads into uh, just kind of the, the general discussion about all of the activity that you've had to participate in and produce over the years as a way to achieve the goals and, and to document what's going on. I, you know, I like I told uh, Diane, I'm 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 just not a sport person. Uh -huh. I love this right here. I love working with sure. the camera. I love working on stage with a microphone and some of these other things, but, but the competition aspect of sports just isn't really for. Let, let me tell you yeah, what, what I think is a funny, a funny story. Cause mm -hmm. uh, the, the theme of this is that there are a lot of ways to get things done. Yeah. And they say, you know, you can use honey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. In uh, 1968, the Women's National Golf Championship was a, a two-person team mm -hmm. event. And we had, as our players here, and I coached the golf, mm -hmm. uh, Lynn Hasty from Cardinville, now Lynn Hasty Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. and Dorothy Germain, who eventually was on the professional tour. Mm -hmm. So those two young ladies are gonna represent SIU. And I didn't even go with them. I mean, we didn't have any money, but yeah. they went to Duke, and they, they won the national championship, Southern Illinois University National Collegiate Golf Championship. Wow. Marvelous. The local newspaper. A column inch, a single a column, column inch. inch. SIU women, Dorothy Germain and Lynn Hasty win at Duke University, blank and blank. Okay. So disappointed because that's, what a marvelous accomplishment. Yeah. Well, we had a women's caucus on campus and I wasn't in a leadership role at that time with that group, but mm -hmm. I would attend every week to their little nosebag luncheons at the student center. <laughs> and they decided to have a male chauvinist pig luncheon. <laughs> now, they were copying this theme from someplace else. The, 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 the tennis, I'm trying to think, what was the big tennis match in like the... Bobby Riggs, uh, yeah. Billy King and there Bobby Riggs. Yeah. Oh, I have a film of that. That's wonderful. But anyway, <laughs> we were going to have this, and each of us as members could invite a chauvinist pig, somebody as an administrator. <laughs> and they said, now we want to make this light and fun. Yeah, yeah. But every woman will introduce their pig. <laughs> this is my pig. <laughs> this is my pig. And why he is a chauvinist pig. Well, they even had little pink pig placemats. 
<laughs> and 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 we did it, and it was informal. It was over at the student center. Mm-hmm. Well, who did I invite? Merle Jones, Southern Illinois sports editor. <laughs> I had a little poster, and I had the one-inch column. So I got up and I introduced, and I said, "This is Merle Jones. He's supposed to cover men's and women's sports." <laughs> and after the national championship, this is the coverage we got. <laughs> And <laughs> so we all went around. Well, I was reporting to Vice President George Mace at the time, and uh-huh. he kind of got his nose out of joint because he said, why didn't you invite me? And I said, George, you certainly qualify. <laughs> but I wanted to get Merle because I thought this was good. So anyway, the next fall, half a page, women's golf. There you go. And so – if if you work, you have to work a lot of different ways. Yeah. And and I tell that I tell that story because uh, I think it, it's it's an example when I teach young women that want to be athletic directors mm-hmm. is there are a lot of ways to get the job done. Yeah. And and certainly you have to uh, have a sense of humor and and be compassionate about a lot of things, but you can never stop moving forward. Yeah. Well, it's it's the it's an example that I use with with folks when I not I, I do a lot of I do a lot of different activities related to digital media and trying to move projects forward, doing that in my own unique way. Yeah. Um, and and not everybody likes it or agrees with it or even understands it to a point. But my concept is is just what you explained, which is that if the rock is rolling down the hill we can move it side to side as we look to reach our destination. Yeah. But if we're just perched somewhere and that rock is immobile, <laughs> then we can't get any progress with it because it's just stagnant. And you have mm-hmm. to find the ways to yeah. move that rock so that you can achieve the goal. And I, what you described there, I think, is is yeah. exactly what the kids these days would call putting somebody on blast <laughs> in, <laughs> a very, in a very unique manner. Putting somebody on blast. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I said I, I, I agree with you on that. You got to keep moving. Yeah. Keep moving. Ah, that's <laughs> just wonderful. Well, and then and then, you know, I'm I'm. I'm appreciative of, of, of this conversation being a kind of a penultimate uh, interview as as you kind of look to the to the to the last leg of of the media race here and talking to ESPN for a Title IX documentary and saying when this is it I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I know. I when I turned eighty, I said. Uh, no more public speaking. Uh-huh. You know, and I stepped away from doing. Uh, institutes in the summer for the NCAA Mm -hmm. to teach women who want to be athletic directors Mm -hmm. and I had I worked hard on that and I said it's time for somebody else to carry the baton yeah you know I feel like I've served so I have pretty much stopped I've I've changed that I went to um, well I've I've made a couple exceptions to that that's not that's not awful (laughs) <laughs> I, I I think it. I really do believe at the time to to let another generation move forward. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think we. I think we've. I think we will have those folks. I don't. I don't think it is. I don't think it is unreasonable to say that that a legacy left will will empower the the next generation of folks right. to achieve whatever the next leg of of seeking equity. Uh, you know, not just in sport, but in you know, in existence as a whole, right? You know, plays that part. Now, now this is you know, I, I we we took we've we've talked a lot more about. Time. I know I said, oh well, we'll we'll get to some personal components to this <laughs> at some point, but you know, we really did gobble up most of our conversation with with Title Nine. But I, right. I'm interested as well in what you what you shared with me, um, you know, before we started the podcast here in in you know seeking out and and reconnecting with family. You had talked oh. about kind of that that process just a little bit uh and are you comfortable kind of just sharing oh, that yeah, and very much so um, i uh i was adopted mm-hmm. by uh my parents that lived in wellsville new york they they went to a home for unwed mothers in uh, grand rapids michigan mm-hmm. and so uh, back in that era <laughs> the, uh, there was not a lot of openness about 
uh, unwed mothers and yeah. also about adoption. So I didn't really find out I was adopted until I was 12. Wow. But we were uh, into the war era, mm -hmm. and they were talking about displaced persons, and I didn't have a birth certificate. So I said, huh. I want a birth certificate. <laughs> and they said, well, okay. They, they would try to get me one. So they wrote to the lawyer in Wellsville, New York, uh -huh. and he got a birth certificate. And on that birth certificate, it said <clears throat> my mother's name and where she was from in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Scott from Marshall, Michigan. So I had that for since I was in my teens. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I didn't feel right going to try to find my parents when my real parents, the ones yeah. that adopted me, were living. But after they had passed, because they were older, mm -hmm. I thought I really would like to find my mother and father. Yeah. So I went to Marshall, Michigan. What, about what year was this, if you don't mind to contextualize? Uh, let me see. Probably about uh, 70, 1970 maybe. So while you're in the mix of all of these other things. Oh, yeah. The emotional lift of. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> because I was at French Lick, Indiana. Because mm -hmm. I was vice president of a Midwest group, professional group. Mm -hmm. And I had to go over there and you know, make arrangements for the room and all this, the meals and all this kind of stuff to put a convention on the next year. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the map and I was so close to Marshall, Michigan, uh -huh. that I thought, okay, now when I'm there, I'm gonna drive up. And I talked a friend into going with me. And so we drove up to Marshall, Michigan. Mm -hmm. My plan of attack was to go to the library, mm -hmm. find a, what do I want to say, not an annual yearbook, mm -hmm. and look for somebody that would have been like 19 to 24 mm -hmm. uh, by the name of Elizabeth Scott. Mm -hmm. So this friend of mine, we got to this place, we got checked in the motel. I got in the shower, get ready to go out to eat that night. She went to the main office, I'm not sure why, but she came back and I said, well, did you find out anything? And she, she said, oh, yes, I talked to her. What? I said, that's shock. I said, what? And she said, yes, I asked the man that owned the motel that I checked in, do you know Elizabeth Scott? And he said, oh, yes, I know Elizabeth Scott, Elizabeth's school teacher here. And uh, do you know her? And she said, oh, well, shocked her so, she said. <laughs> I think we're related. And he said, well, I'm calling her up. And she said, no, no, no. I'll. And he called her up, knew her number right away. Uh -huh, called. So uh -huh. Elizabeth got somebody here to talk to you. So my friend just said, uh, uh, hi, my name is Joanne Thorpe, and I think maybe we're related. And on the other end, she said, well, dear, I don't know any Thorpes. I don't think we're related. <laughs> I don't think we're related. She said, okay. So she came back and told me that. And she said, I'm getting out of this. She said, <laughs> from now on, it's up to you. Uh huh. So I called in the morning after breakfast, and I said, this is Charlotte West, who she didn't know from Adam, yeah. of course. And I said, is there any way I could come and see you today and talk to you? And she said, oh, yes, 9 o'clock would be fine. And she told me how to get there. So later found out that when she got that strange call, she was thinking. Gears were turning. Yeah. So we got there. We parked. There was a long walk up to the front of the house, and she met us at the door, and she said, which one of you is it? Oh, and she said, I don't have to ask that. It's you. You look just like your father. <laughs> Not me. You look just like your father. <laughs> so she said, come in, sit down, ask me anything you want to ask. Oh Very gracious lady. She was a... Um, young woman she was 19 when she got pregnant mm -hmm. it was a one-time deal and by the time she found out she was pregnant my father was with somebody else mm -hmm. so she lived with her father and her sister her mother had died at an early age mm -hmm. so she went to grand rapids and had me she came back home never knew nobody around there ever knew she put herself through college and uh taught and uh so I asked her about my father, and she said, oh, he doesn't know anything about you, you know. So I said, well, I won't, I won't try to, you know, interrupt his yeah. life. 
but I wanted to, but I didn't. So his name was Charles Vandenheed, and he had a farm there in Marshall. Mm -hmm. And he had married, and he had four boys. <laughs> My mother, after she had had me, uh -huh. she married and had two boys. I have six half-brothers, no sisters. Uh, and you would have been the eldest. Oh, yeah, I would have been the eldest. Like, my oldest half-brother is uh, 82 or 3, and mm -hmm. I'm 88. So, anyway, he, I went away, and uh, uh, after that, I met my mother several times, and we got close. She called me, and she said, Now, I didn't tell my husband about you. She'd been divorced after she had her first two kids. Uh -huh. And she said, every time we had a disagreement, he threw it up to me that I was this loose woman and all this. So she said, I thought from here on out, I'm not going to tell anybody. So she had not told Mel, her husband. Mm -hmm. So she thought later, that's not right. So she told him, and she called me, and she said, Mel wants to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> now, they're in Michigan, and I'm down here. Uh -huh. And this is really ironical. And I said, you know what? I'm bringing my golf team to Michigan State next weekend. <laughs> if you and Mel want to come up, you can come up. Yeah. So that came up, and I met him. And he, he was fascinated at how much I was like my mother, although I'd never, ever seen her but once. Yeah. And uh, long story short, then uh, he passed away, and then she passed away. And uh, her son that I had gotten in touch with— uh -huh. Uh, never met him face to face, but he was a Cardinal fan, and I was a, I'm a Cardinal fan, and we talk on the phone, you know. Mm -hmm. And he died. Okay, so then his wife was at the grocery store one day and stopped this lady, Mickey Vandenheed, mm -hmm. and said, "Have you heard anything from Charlotte?" And Mickey said, "Charlotte, who?" Oh my gosh! And so she blabbed this out. She was kind of a busybody. <laughs> so uh, she called me and she said, Charlotte, I've done something bad. And I said, what's that? And she said, I've told about you. <laughs> so now your father's family knows. And I said, well, that's okay. Heath already passed away uh -huh. and, and my mother had passed away. And I said, nobody's going to get hurt. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Hung up. A few minutes later, she called again. She said, okay, now Mickey went home and told one of the boys and he wants to call and talk to you. <laughs> I said, okay. So the youngest one, Tom, called, and we had a nice talk. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he told the other three boys. Uh -huh. And now I have subsequently met them all. They came to Carbondale uh -huh. to meet me. Uh, Tom's been to Florida to visit me. I've been to a, a Vandenheed family reunion in Marshall and met that group and some others. And my brother, the oldest one, is a sports editor. Stop <laughs> and, it. Yep. And, yeah, and uh, <laughs> just a marvelous person. So long story short, I have four half-brothers that I've met and I communicate with. Mm -hmm. And it's been just been very wonderful. Yeah. Ah, that so, is... I, I could almost cry, Charlotte. Like, that is just what a story. I know. It's interesting, Nathan. I had a neighbor that back when I decided to go up the first time to find my mother, and she said, oh, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. You know, you don't know what you'll find. Uh -huh. And I said, if I get there and she's the town prostitute, she's the town prostitute. I'm yeah. not. And I said, so I'm not going to worry about that. What I find is what I find. And, of course, what I found was all very positive. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it just seems like there there was something that did just that was always there. I mean, you talk about your mother being a teacher, yeah, right, and and some of these other com components to uh, to just being without without ever having to be in space with her to still being oh, yeah. a significant part of her. I, I was at her place in uh, Florida. They'd go to Florida in the winter, and uh, after breakfast. We're just getting to know each other. She says, do you like to work crossword puzzles? And I said, oh, I love it. I love it. So she pulled out of the paper. She had one, and I had one. We're sitting there. And she got through ahead of me and said, there, I beat you. I got through it. 
<laughs> so she said, was competitive too, yeah, is what you're telling oh, me. She's just competitive, and, and Mel was just sitting over there laughing. And shortly after, I finished mine, and she said, "Well, I did give you the harder one." <laughs> <laughs> So we had some good times. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so that, are we done? I mean, that's yeah. We're we're at fifty nine minutes. Oh, and an hour. That's that's it. That Perfect. is the. Perfect. Go ahead. Sorry. No. <laughs> that's yeah. That's that's it. That is um. Okay. Episode seventy four of the WTF Carbondale podcast. Um, yep. Doctor Charlotte West, an amazing person. Oh. Uh, no, no, you're not on camera anymore. You're safe. Okay. You you stretch <laughs> out as you see fit. Um. <laughs> I just, I just, uh, I'm, you know, I'm so, so thankful to the, to the folks that, that, you know, just brought Dr. West up and then helped to facilitate this. And it's amazing how, uh, you know, interconnected she is with, with all of the, uh, amazing things that have happened in this place, but around this country, uh, and how it's influenced, uh, you know, sport worldwide. And that's just what this whole project is about is showing how connected folks, uh, are in this town not just with each other but with much greater uh things than our than ourselves going on in the world around us so uh without too much more <laughs> pontificating on that uh have a good one folks whatever that one may be <laughs>